0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here at our church. And if you're visiting with us for the first time, we're really glad that you're here. Thanks for uh, coming to join us this morning. It's very important to us as a church to give significant time to studying the Bible because the Bible contains God's own words to us. And right now we're on the second Sunday of a four-week series, sermon series, where we are joining with other churches in State College to preach on the topic of one voice, prayers for our city. This week I will focus on the topic of our unity, the, the one voice part, and especially how we express our unity when we meet together as a church. And the Bible says that each church has unity with all of the others when they behave in a way that pleases God. So, this morning I will address this question of what should we do when we gather together? What should our services look like? God gave us a full chapter of Scripture to explain this in great detail. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 14. That's where we will be this morning. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 623. Before diving in to the the passage itself, we must know what the author, who is a man named Paul, what what he was dealing with. And we'll see here why we need love. Point number one. Paul is writing to this church in the city of Corinth, which is modern-day Greece, And these churches in Corinth have been out of control. They are filled with factions devoted to each major leader of the early Christian movement. They are filled with fighting and bickering. They're not sure how to relate to the immoral cultural practices in public places that were common in their day. Sexual immorality was rampant. They were taking one another to court and even during the celebration of communion, one of the most, uh, one of the, one of the most fundamental of church ceremonies, the, the the chief practice in the churches that's meant to remember Christ's death, during that communion, they would push each other out of the way in order to get to the bread and the wine. And some of what was going on in the church was so offensive to God that he was striking people dead. And that fact still had not caught their attention, that there were issues. In their weekly gatherings, they all wanted to exercise their own spiritual gifts. And each of them would come to that gathering and, and they would teach or pray or sing or heal or perform miracles or speak in different languages. Each person wanted to have his or her own say. He wanted to express himself or herself in order to feel closer to Jesus. And Paul wants them to see how much they need love. And so to know why we need love today in our church, we need to understand two things. About this letter and as we consider it. The first is that American churches today are a lot like the Corinthian churches then. American churches today are a lot like the Corinthian churches then. This is the first reason why we need love. Because we bicker and fight just like they did. We all have our heroes, our Christian heroes that we get behind. John Wesley, John Calvin, David Jeremiah, John Piper, Martin Luther, Menno Simons, Paul Washer, C.I. Schofield, Tim Keller, Jesus. We all have our heroes just like they did. And it's funny, we can get behind Jesus in a way that's divisive, can't we? Some of them said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow Apollos. And some said, I follow Jesus. Jesus but they would do that in a divisive way. We're better than those others. We often, in our churches, we engage in the same sort of immorality as the the world around us. What kind of movies do Christians typically watch? What kind of pictures do Christians look at on their computers? And often, our worship services often tend to focus on fostering the individual's connection to God rather than fostering what will serve and build up all the people present. So we need to know that American churches today are a lot like Corinthian churches were back then. The second thing we need to know about why we need love is because we're going to look at chapter 14 this morning, but we need to know the previous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, is probably Paul's most famous chapter on the topic of love. And we need to understand that this chapter... 1 Corinthians 13 was written as a sharp rebuke of this self-actualization in public gatherings. Listen to what Paul had to say in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You see, he is satirizing their worship. You speak in all these tongues, but if you don't have love, you're just making noise like a gong. If I have prophetic powers, verse 2, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Friends, we read this at our weddings, but we usually miss the biting satire. verse 11, he said, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. In other words, he is saying, you are acting like children. You need to grow up. And when he moves from chapter 13 into chapter 14, The instructions he gives here are to help us grow out of childishness into maturity to learn how mature believers ought to behave in church gatherings. And I want to say this at the beginning here. By God's grace, I do believe that our congregation is not as childish as some. I praise God for how much you all love And serve one another. You are filled with faith, with hope, and love. And you know that the greatest of these is love. And so this morning as I preach this chapter, I don't intend it with the same kind of bite that Paul intended to his original audience. But I do want to preach this to to us because I want to communicate that we can't coast. We can't ever let off the gas pedal and just, just go and say, you know, we're doing this well. We're just going to, going to keep going. We need to continue to excel in this direction because the moment that we stop thinking about love, we will settle into childish ways of behaving toward one another and we will lose maturity. So please join me now as we hear God explain through Paul how this love must continue to permeate our church gatherings. And please join me in continuing to grow up together so that we may avoid childishness. We will see in chapter 14 and the rest of your outline that Paul wants to make three main points. That love desires prophecy over tongues. And then we'll see that love drives our public gatherings. And finally, we'll see that love rejects self-fulfillment and self-expression. The first step for behaving maturely in church is to be... Desire, prophecy over tongues. Before I read the passage, I need to define these terms lest we be hopelessly confused. When, when Paul talks about tongues here, and when I speak about tongues in this sermon, I'm merely talking about speaking in different languages. In chapter 13, verse 1, he talked about speaking in the tongues of men or of angels. Here in 14, verses 10 and 11, he'll talk about all the different languages there are in the world. So there are human languages that different people speak all over the world. And Paul even refers to the the languages, the tongues of angels, that some claim to speak mysterious angelic languages. But when we talk about speaking in tongues, we're just talking about speaking different languages. And when he talks about prophecy... He's talking about speaking the word of God to other people. Sometimes when we think of the word prophecy, we think about predicting the future. Sometimes it involves that, but often it doesn't. Prophecy often just includes teaching or ethical instruction. In chapter 2 of verse 13, he clarified prophecy, the prophetic powers, as understanding all mysteries and all knowledge. So what Paul's going to do in chapter 14 is contrast these two behaviors, speaking in different languages and speaking God's word to other people, tongues and prophecy. And we'll confuse his argument if we think he's putting these two things into the same bucket. He's not. He's separating them and he's contrasting the two. And he wants us to see that love desires to speak God's word. Love does not necessarily desire to speak different languages Let me read verses 1 through 25, where Paul says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people For their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air." There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature, In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his hearts are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let us stop there for now. Paul wants us to desire prophecy more than tongues for four reasons. I'm going to walk through these four reasons. Uh, The first is that the pursuit of love means building up others and not ourselves. The second reason is that the work of God's Spirit is to benefit the whole church, not just ourselves. Third, let us see the instruction of the mind. Church meetings are not merely for satisfying your spirit but also for instructing your mind. And the fourth, letter D, will be that mature thinking and mature speaking reaches outsiders and draws them in. So let me walk through these things. First, letter A, the pursuit of love. This is his argument in verses 1 through 5. He says, pursue love, and as you pursue love, that means to earnestly desire gifts of prophecy. Because someone who speaks in a tongue, someone who speaks a different language, may speak to God for his own growth, but one who prophesies speaks to other people for their growth. And Paul wants us all to grow in our own walk with God. But when together, he says... Verse 4, The one who prophesies builds up the church. When we are together, we should seek the growth of others, not of ourselves. Therefore, the pursuit of love equals desiring prophecy over tongues. That's his argument in the first paragraph, verses 1 through 5. That love drives us to seek the good of others, not just ourselves. Therefore, we will speak God's word and not just speak different languages. Letter B, his argument in verses 6 through 12 is that this has to do with the work of God's Spirit. In verse 12, he says, you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit. Well, let me tell you how the Spirit manifests himself. God sent his Spirit to build up and benefit the church community. But people cannot be benefited if they don't understand what you say. Verse 9, If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? And they, they don't understand. People can't understand people who speak different languages from themselves. Therefore, the work of God's Spirit in building up the church means if the Spirit is present among you, you will desire prophecy over tongues so that people can understand what you're saying and be benefited by it. It's his second argument. Third, letter C. The argument of verses 13 through 19. He says here that there is a place for speaking in tongues. He does not forbid the practice. There is a place for it, and that is when they can be interpreted. Verse 13. The one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. So it's not the... The, the speaking the different language that is the thing that really matters. It's the interpretation, it's the clarity, the understanding that will benefit other people. If there's a translation. And he says, this practice of speaking different languages, whether I know these languages or whether it's supernatural, I didn't know these languages, and now here I am speaking in these languages. This practice, it might stir up my spirit with more affection for Christ, but the practice leaves my mind behind. He says that in verse 14. If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. And because of the practice, it gets me excited, my passion takes over, But because it leaves my mind behind, it leaves the minds of other people behind as well because they can't understand what I'm saying. And because they can't understand what I'm saying, they'll never be able to agree with what I'm saying. When he says, verse 16, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? If they don't understand, they can't agree. And if they can't agree, then they can't be changed by it and impacted by it. And Paul concludes with this astonishing statement in verse 19. In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And I have a deal. I have the deal of a century for anyone in this church. I have $5, okay? I will give you $5 if you give me $10,000, okay? I promise you, I will give you $5 in exchange for $10,000. And if you want to take that deal, then you can go ahead and desire tongues speaking over prophecy. That's what Paul is saying. It's that kind of a deal. Therefore, the instruction of the mind demands that we desire prophecy over tongues in the public gathering of the church. His fourth argument... Letter D, in verses 20 through 25, his argument here is to, he's calling us, please, to think about this maturely. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. In your thinking, be mature. And he says, don't just go after your passions. Don't just go after what excites you, but think about it. And then he quotes a passage from Isaiah 28. Where in context, Isaiah is making an argument that God uses foreign language to expose the hypocrisy of unbelievers who claim to be believers. This whole quote about, um, verse 21, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. He's talking to his his hypocritical people, Israel. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. The, The picture is that, These people think they are following God until the point at which a foreign nation shows up. And they wake up one morning and they go out on the street and nobody's speaking Hebrew anymore. They're all speaking Babylonian. And it's a sign that we have been conquered and we are done. And God has judged us. And these foreign languages are a sign to unbelievers to expose the hypocrisy of people who think they're believers, but they're really unbelievers. However, Paul makes the argument that prophecy is how God makes and develops true believers. When visitors to your church come in, when outsiders come in, they will think you are crazy if they hear nothing but babble that they can't understand. But when the word of God is spoken with clarity and with power, then there is a real possibility, verses 23 to 25, for conviction, exposure, repentance, and worship. Therefore, what Paul is arguing here is that the conversion, if we want to seek the conversion of outsiders, that demands that we desire prophecy over tongues in our public gatherings. That was a lot of argumentation. How does this apply to us? Friends, this chapter explains why we hold our worship services in English. We don't hold them in Latin. There once was a time when the church said, we have to have our service in Latin even if nobody understands it. We don't do that anymore. We do it in English. We do it in the language of the people. We don't do it in Russian even though we have a few Russians here in our church. We don't do it in Chinese. We don't do it in Swahili. English is the primary language for the people we are trying to reach. English is what we understand. Therefore, English is how we proceed. Now, some of you grew up in churches that spoke old languages that some of the folks didn't understand much anymore, and you wanted a church that spoke something, spoke a language your children would understand so they could hear the gospel and be changed and transformed by it. And I want you to know that your decision to do that was well-informed and well-intentioned right out of this chapter. To go to a place where people can understand what is said. This chapter also explains why we do everything in our church in plain language. We don't want to set up a new dialect of Christianese. And there are at least three common ways that we can do that. I could do it like this. Ah, I'm so blessed to be here. Aren't you blessed to be here? I just asked for God's hedge of protection around my brothers and sisters. You know, we can spit out all these words and phrases that normal people are like, what on earth are you talking about? I don't know what any of that means. And we need to avoid that and speak in normal language. A second way we can do that is I could stand here and talk about how my homily will expound to you the intertextual connotations that arise from our hermeneutical praxis. But I don't want to do that to you either. That would be a different language. And a third way we could do this is I could tell you, you know, in this chapter, the Greek word for tongues is glossé, from which we get linguistic terminology such as glottal stop. <laughs> but I don't want to speak in a tongue to you in the public Gathering, there's no need to. If I can use normal words that will be more clear, then I will do that. This chapter explains to you why we focus in our church so much on preaching. We focus on speaking God's words as clearly as possible because we want to both convert outsiders and strengthen true believers. And so when we are together, let us all testify to one another about Jesus as clearly as possible. And as we do so, let us bring in outsiders who will be convicted and worship God among us. And if you're here today and you don't yet identify with Jesus, if you you don't yet believe, I would really love to hear from you what made sense to you in this service and what didn't make sense. If there's anything that you're like, that's ridiculous. I, I don't even know what you were talking about. I would really like to know about that so that we can do that better. Please talk to me. We as leaders do these things because we love you. And so how can we all grow at loving one another in our gatherings? This is the next section. Verses 26 through 35, we see that love drives our public gatherings. Verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Here's Paul's first application. It's that everybody comes to church with different expectations, with different preferences, with different experiences and different hopes for the day and different needs for the week different gifts and skills that they would like to put to use. And Paul says, let all things be done for building up. So whatever you think about doing in church, always ask yourself whether it will help others or just help yourself. And if it will help others, there's probably a place for it. Let's do it. Let's try it. If it's just for you, So that you can feel closer to Jesus, then please have some self-control and put that on hold for a little bit, and you can go do it when you're alone with Jesus. And it would probably be just fine for you to do when you're alone with Jesus. Verses 27 through 35, he continues. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to anyone sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. So he says a few things here in this passage, verses 27 and 28. He gives specific rules for speaking in tongues. And he says two or three people may do it, but only if they know that there is somebody else there who can translate for them. How does this apply for us? Friends, if English is not your best language, you are still welcome here. And we are so glad to have you here. You are welcome to be here, and you are welcome to speak your language if that's easiest for you. Just please make sure that somebody can translate so that everybody can understand what you're saying. That's basically what he's saying in verses 27 and 28. In verses 29 to 35, he gives specific rules for prophesying. And again, he says two or three may speak. It's not that everybody comes together and, and everybody says what's on their mind, that they think God has to say. There are two or three. But even with those two or three, he says the leaders of the church, who are to be men, they are to weigh what is said by the prophets. So you can't say whatever you want and claim that it is from God because whatever is said needs to be weighed by the scripture, by the leaders of the church. I've heard horror stories of people prophesying, making prophecies, such as talking to two young people and telling them that they are supposed to marry one another. And sometimes one of them is not even a believer but yet, this prophecy came upon them. You two are supposed to get married. Maybe one's not a believer, or maybe that one is enslaved to some destructive behaviors, and the leaders of the church didn't do their job to evaluate what was said against Scripture. And to say, no, actually, the Bible says, if one is not a believer, you are not to get married. God is not a God of confusion, verse 33. God is a God of peace, Such behavior, as I just described, is childish. It is not mature. It is fleshly. It is not spiritual. How does this apply for us? Friends, how does your love for the body drive your behavior when we gather together? One thing that I'm really challenged by in this chapter is I was thinking, you know, how does love drive or not drive my behavior? And I was thinking that that one of the things we do every Sunday is we open the floor for anybody to share how God's at work in their lives. And this is a great thing to hear testimony of what God is doing in your life. And we can get to know one another and we can worship God together. And you know, most of the time, I just sit here like a sack of potatoes. I'm like, oh, I can't think of anything that's exciting enough or flashy enough. Or, and, and I just I get frozen by my fear Whereas if I really loved you all the way God calls me to, I would probably think ahead of time before I come here, you know, what's something I could share this week? It's not possible that God was not at work in my life this week. So if I loved you, I might think about some things and come ready to share. What about you? How does love drive your behavior in our gatherings? We sing songs together. Do you sing and do you act during the singing in a way that serves other people and not just yourself or your own preferences? In one of our, uh, a, a fellowship on a campus where I, I used to, to do ministry, uh, we once had a girl who had the most uncomfortable, frowny face you could imagine. And she would just sit there during the whole time during the talk and she'd just be like, frowning away and as we got to know this girl we realized she actually wasn't frowning she was just thinking that was her thinking face and we would warn speakers when they came in we said you got to know there's this one girl who has just the scariest frown you have ever seen it does not mean that she does not like what you are saying it means that she's thinking about it and she's excited to think about it. And eventually we would talk to her too. Just say, do you know what you're communicating with that facial expression? Maybe just be aware of that so that you know how that comes across to others and it might not be the most serving thing. If you can just be aware of your eyebrows and your lips and things like that. If not, that's okay. We, we love you and we appreciate you, but as much as you can. What about you? What do you do or what do you not do that helps To build up the body. Let me move on to our final point here. Verses 36 through 40, Paul says that love rejects self fulfillment and self expression. The good news about Jesus Christ is that he died to save sinners. And Paul, if you want to keep reading after chapter 14, the beginning of chapter 15, Paul goes right into the spirit of prophecy. When we prophesy, what are we talking about? It's that God came to earth, he became a man so he could take our place. He fulfilled God's righteous requirements on our behalf, and he suffered our deserved punishment in our place. And as we preach this message, there is a danger in preaching this message. The danger is that we get so focused on what God does for us. In other words, what God does for me, that we stop there, and I just think about what he does for me. And that feeds my natural inclinations to turn inward and to care about myself. And we can plan church services that cater to individuals and communicates to them what God does for you through Jesus' death and resurrection. And when we attend those services, sometimes we attend them hoping to get something out of them. But we need to understand that God rescues us so that we can join his mission. He rescues us so that we can turn outward and serve others more than ourselves. And so when we gather together, we must reject self-fulfillment and self-expression. We're not here for ourselves. We are for here for each other, and we are here for the world. That's why Paul ends this chapter with a big outward vision for the church's unity. Verses 36 through 40. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues but all things should be done decently and in order. What's the point here? Verse 36, Paul asks two rhetorical questions to reveal that we are not the center of the universe. Are you the only ones the word of God has reached? You are not the center of the universe. In 37 and 38, he says that anyone guided by God's spirit will recognize these truths, that our behavior in church is for the good of others and not for ourselves. Verse 39, he says that we are not to forbid speaking in tongues, but even more than tongues, we should earnestly desire to prophesy, to speak God's word to each other. In verse 40, he says that the good of the church means doing things decently and in order. We don't do them chaotically or selfishly or self-centeredly. How does this apply for us? Friends, if you like to raise your hands when you sing, that's okay. You are free to raise your hands when you sing. If you like to clap, please feel free to clap. You're free to do that. But please don't do any of those things. Well, let me balance that out. If you like to put your hands in your pockets, you are free to do that. Okay? But don't do any of these things in order to express yourself. Do these things if it will encourage others. I was once at a worship service. It was pretty packed tightly in. Everybody had to sit pretty close together. And the guy right next to me threw his hands up. And his hand went right in front of my face, and I couldn't see the words anymore. That was pretty distracting to me. He was expressing himself, but he was not loving me in that moment. Other times, I find we'll sing a song that actually says, "We lift up our hands," and I'll look around the room, and everyone's like this. "Hands in pockets, I'm like,, what? do we mean what we're saying? We lift up our hands. That's not talking about my heart. It's not talking about my heart being joyful. It's, it says, "We lift up our hands." Let's serve one another. Let's lift up our hands. The Bible says that. It it talks about that. In a few weeks, in two weeks, we're having a joint service with other city churches at Eisenhower Auditorium. And we will do this to express our unity with other churches. And when you get there, if you haven't been to one of these joint services, I want to warn you, it will not look like a Grace Fellowship service. There will be some other worship team that chooses and leads the songs for us, and there will be some other pastors that will shepherd us through the service, and other congregations will be represented, and they'll be used to different things than we are. And I want to be clear that when we do something like this, if the message about Jesus has been compromised, then we do not have unity with these people, with, with any church, any people. In chapter 15, as I said, Paul is going to go on to clarify the essence of this message, the spirit of prophecy. But as long as that message of Jesus' death and resurrection to rescue us from our sins and bring us into God's kingdom, as long as that message goes uncompromised, then our differences with the other church communities are glorious. And we should celebrate and rejoice In those differences and worship together in unity. This morning, Judy walked in. She saw that I was preaching on 1 Corinthians 14. She said, Does this mean that I can, I can dance in the aisle after you preach this sermon? I said, I said, yes, as long as it serves others. So if there are people dancing, dance. Don't stand there like a bum and a grumpy old guy or lady being a sourpuss, We worship together in unity. And if we sit there inwardly complaining about the way things are done, we are the ones who are guilty of breaking the unity. And I confess, this is my temptation. I look at all the people who I believe, I've already judged them and convicted them, that they are more concerned with expressing themselves than with building up the body. And I miss the fact that I'm actually the one who's guilty of self-fulfillment. And I'm guilty because I get upset when things aren't the way I would prefer. And I'm acting as though I am the only one the word of God has reached. Friends, we need love in our own congregation and we need love in our relationships with the other city churches. What does that mean? It means that love desires prophecy more than tongues. It means that love drives our public gatherings And it means that love rejects self-fulfillment and self-expression. Would you please pray with me that such love would characterize our body here at Grace Fellowship Church? Pray with me that we would be known as those who love one another and who love our city deeply, such that outsiders would be drawn in and convicted and that many would declare that God is really among us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are a God of peace. And we pray that you would help us to live at peace with all others. Please make this kind of love that you command us to have, make this to characterize our church, that we would be known as those who love one another and who love our city deeply. We pray, O Lord, that you would please draw in outsiders, that they would be convicted, that they would declare that God is really among us, and that they would join us in worshiping you forever. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.